You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the March 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to Drs. Caitlin Schultz and Robert Spira, who are two of the authors of a paper entitled B-Cell Reconstitution is Associated with COVID-19 Booster Vaccine Responsiveness in Patients Previously Seronegative Treated with Rituximab. They will review the important findings of the paper to you. And so now the punchline. What did you find? Yeah, so ultimately we found that patients were able to seroconvert to the third dose, even if they did not mount a response after the first two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, and that the presence of detectable B-cells and time from last rituxan were associated with a positive vaccine response. So um, as is already incorporated into the various guidelines for timing an additional dose of the vaccine, longer duration from last rituxan exposure was associated with a greater likelihood of vaccine response. However, we found that 38% of patients less than six months since last rituximab and only 78 patients of uh, patients greater than six months since last rituxan seroconverted following the booster dose. And all patients that were seropositive in these two cohorts were beginning to reconstitute their peripheral B cells. And in those that remained seronegative, all but two patients were B cell depleted. And we also saw that the positive predictive value of B cell reconstitution for COVID-19 serologic response was 90.9% and the negative predictive value was 100%. Thank you. Anything to add? No, it was just really striking that um, and interesting, you know, ACR guidelines have not incorporated B-cell reconstitution right. assessment of that into this. It, it hasn't incorporated um, time, um, but time really did not seem as strongly predictive as B-cell reconstitution in terms of its positive or negative predictive value. Um, um, and not just this study, but other studies have similarly suggested that B-cell reconstitution um, seems important in predicting at least a serologic vaccine response. I'd also add that I think there were concerns that time is easy. Like people can look at time in their patients clinically and know when they had their last rituximab. And I think there may have been concerns about access to measuring B-cell reconstitution or uh, clinician comfort with that. Um, and other studies have even looked at thresholds of B-cell B reconstitution, um, but here just as a binary variable, like, you know, being completely B-cell depleted peripherally versus not completely B-cell depleted peripherally, which is very easy and very interpretable and actually very accessible in commercial labs, um, uh, worked well. Um, and I think a lot of clinicians are doing that now. I hope you enjoyed listening to Drs. Schultz and Spira review their important findings of the paper, and that, in fact, you will listen to the complete interview I had with them and read their full-length article 
as well as an accompanying editorial entitled Importance of SARS-CoV-2 Spike Antibodies in B-Cell Reconstitution to Optimize the Prevention Strategy of COVID-19 by Drs. Marion Thompson, Thomas and Jerome Abouak. This, both of these articles are available on our website at www.jroom.org. The next article I'd like to bring your attention to is entitled Effects of Aging on Rheumatoid Factor and Anticyclic Citrullinated Peptide Antibody Positivity in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. And it is by Takanashi and colleagues. The aim of this paper was to investigate factors that affect rheumatoid factor, RF, and anticyclic citronated peptide, anti-CCP, antibody positivity in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. In this cross-sectional study, the authors examined the association of age, a diagnosis, sex, smoking habit, body mass, BMI, and family history with the presence of RF and anti-CCP antibodies in 1,685 patients with RA. The mean age of the patients at diagnosis was 51.9 years and 83.4% were female. 76.8% were RF positive and 79 uh, 74.9% had anti-CCP antibodies. The authors found that the positivity rates for both RF and anti-CCP antibodies decreased almost linearly with increasing age at RA diagnosis after age 30 years. Multivariate analysis showed that seropositivity was significantly decreased in women non-smokers, and patients with a BMI of less than 25 kilos. Read the complete article to find other significant associations with seropositivity. Impaired physical function is frequently seen in patients with axial spondyloarthritis or SPA. In their paper entitled Clinically Relevant Deficits in Performance Tests in Patients with Axial Spondyloarthritis, Kiltz and colleagues assess the association between self-reported and performance-based physical function in 200 patients with axial SPA. 65.5% had radiographic axial SPA, and 34.5% non-radiographic disease. 69% of patients were male with a mean age of 44.3 years and a mean symptom duration of 17.9 years. A secondary aim was to evaluate which performance tests were most frequently impaired in these patients. Patient impairment was defined as the inability to perform greater than or equal to one of the performance tests. Authors found that an impairment was of greater than or equal to one performance test was seen in 45.5% of the patients. 
they found that the two most frequently impaired performance tests were the repeated chair stand test in 37.5% and putting on socks in 22%. The overall correlation between self-reported physical function and performance-based tests was moderate to high for all tests except grip strength, which had a low correlation. There was no correlation between structural damage and performance tests. Similarly, there was no difference in tender and swollen joint counts between those with and without impairment, although both tender and swollen joint counts were low in this cohort. Patients with a BASFI score of less than 4 did not show impairment, while 79% of patients with a BASFI score of greater than or equal to 4 had at least one impairment. None of the patients who were felt to be in remission had impairment. Patients with impairments tended to be older, had a higher body mass index, more active disease as measured by the ASDAS, a higher BAS-FI and BAS-ME scores. They had higher depression scores as measured by the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 and higher ACES Health Index scores than those without impairment. In the paper, the authors go into a more in-depth discussion of the correlation of the self-reported and performance-based tests of physical function and review the significance and implications of their findings in the individual test results. Patients with SLE have a higher rehospitalization rate, and this is particularly true in young adults. If one can reduce these preventable rehospitalizations, then this would significantly improve quality of life. The aim of this of the study entitled Age Stratified 30-Day Rehospitalization and Mortality and Predictors of Rehospitalization Among Patients with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, a Medicare cohort study by Schnauzerbaum and colleagues, was to measure the 30-day rehospitalization rates and mortality in young adults with SLE as compared to those without SLE and in and in older adults with SLA. Using administrative data, the authors examined 1.39 million Medicare hospitalizations, of which 10,868 were in patients with SLA. They found the 30-day rehospitalization rate was 36% among young adults with SLA and this was 40% higher than patients without lupus and 85% higher than patients older than 65 who had SLA. The 30-day mortality risk for young adults with and without SLA were similar at 0.5% and 0.7% respectively. Patients with SLE were significantly younger 
and more likely to be black or Hispanic than those without SLE. Disability, receipt of Medicaid, and multiple comorbidity conditions were the most frequent seen when one compared young adults with SLE than older adults with SLE or to age match non-SLE population. Young adults with SLE tended to have a higher illness burden and to live in more disadvantaged neighborhoods than older patients with SLE and when those without SLE. In an accompanying editorial entitled, Burden of Comorbidity Predicts 30-Day Rehospitalizations in Young Adult Medicare Beneficiaries with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, April Jorge from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School reviews the literature on rehospitalization rates in patients with SLE. Dr. Jorge then reviews the methodology and highlights the important additions that this article brings to the literature. Reading both the original article by Schnetzelbaum and colleagues and Dr. Jorge's editorial are important to understand the reasons for high rehospitalizations for young adults with SLE and where there may be potential to intervene to reduce this risk. The last article I want to bring to your attention is entitled Canadian Rheumatology Association Recommendations for the Screening, Monitoring, and Treatment of Juvenile Idiopathic Arthritis-Associated Uveitis and is by Berard et al. on behalf of the Canadian Rheumatology Association Uveitis Working Group. This working group consists of 14 pediatric rheumatologists from 13 of the 14 Canadian academic centers, one community-based pediatric rheumatologist, one trainee, and six ophthalmologists from across Canada all with a special interest and or subspecialty training in uveitis. There were also three uveitis parent or patient champions. The group performed a systematic review of the literature up to February 6, 2020 and used the grade development approach to assess quality. There was 100% agreement on all adapted and new recommendations. The recommendations were divided into six categories. One, screening guidelines with a definition of the high-risk group. Two, how to monitor patients with uveitis. Three, the type and frequency of topical glucocorticoid therapy, including when to add or change systemic therapy for non-response. Four, conventional and biologic DMARD use, which ones to use and when to switch. Five, educational recommendations for children and adolescents with spondyloarthritis and recommendations for the treatment of an acute flare of the uveitis. 
and honestly, how and when to taper therapy for uveitis. Some of these guidelines did differ from the recent 2019 guidelines of the American College of Rheumatology Arthritis Foundation guidelines. In the discussion, the authors review how and why the two guidelines differ. In the accompanying editorial, Dr. Sheila Angeles Hahn from the Division of Ophthalmology and Rheumatology, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, University of Cincinnati, who was a lead investigator of the American College of Rheumatology Arthritis Foundation guidelines on uveitis, and Dr. Sunril Srovasta from the Cole Eye Institute Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland, USA, review the CRA guidelines and compare them to the ACRRF guidelines. They also review the importance of the access universally to DMARDs, including biologic DMARDs. The article from the Canadian Rheumatology Association, UVITIS, Working group and the accompanying editorial are important reading for all physicians who care for patients with a JIA with and without uveitis. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 29-year-old male who is diagnosed with familiar Mediterranean fever at age 10. The patient had been in remission for many years on colchicine, but Several years prior to admission, he had stopped the colchicine. Three months prior to admission, he had recurrent attacks of abdominal pain, pleuritic chest pain, which, was a, which were accompanied by painful subcutaneous nodules on his arms and legs. Both the nodules and the attacks lasted a few days and were recurrent. A skin biopsy of one of the nodules was consistent with polyarteritis nodosa. Reinstitution of colchicine resulted in a complete remission of his attacks and no recurrence of the subcutaneous nodules. The figures in this image show both the nodules and their histology. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted article, but all the articles in the March 2023 edition of the journal. I again want to bring your attention to the fact that 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Journal of Rheumatology. And this month, we have reprinted three articles from the 1980s, which I felt with particular importance to the practice of rheumatology. All the articles, including the reprinted articles, are are available either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. Please watch my complete interview with the authors of this month's featured article on the effect of rituximab on seroconversion to COVID-19 vaccination booster. And if you have missed them, my interviews of featured articles from previous months. 
They are all available for viewing at our website and on YouTube. If you have any questions or comments on the highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.org. And please listen next month to the April edition of Editor's Highlights. Thank you.